You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. It's already been a good morning, but I'm so glad that you have joined us, especially if this is your first time with us. Again, uh, we're so glad that you're here. Just to give you a little heads up, we have been in a series for a while now, uh, walking through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And uh, today, one week removed from our 21-day fast that we were doing as a church, we are going to teach on fasting, because that's what... Uh, Jesus is uh, talking about in this next passage is think, wow, that's impeccable timing, right? Like wait till the fast is done and then teach on fasting. Well, we did teach on fasting right before the fast began. You may remember Thomas and Angelina did an awesome message on that. But on the so we're bookending it with a fasting message in the front end of the fast and at the end of the fast. And I'm really glad that it happened that way because our hope is that uh, you would and that we as a church family would uh, regularly practice the fasting on our own. Then make it a part of our regular like life and how we practice the way of Jesus because that's what we're about as a church is we're, we're people that are practicing the way of Jesus together in Austin and fasting was one of Jesus's practices and how he communed with the, with the Father and the Spirit and, uh, and so it was really a key practice of his. It should be a practice of ours as well. Now, we would fast regularly, but I do understand that that might sound like a, you know, kind of a weird expectation or hope that we would all be fasting because we don't really do that in the church today, right? I mean, it's not the normative thing, but I think it... It's supposed to be. And here's why I say that. Because in this passage, as Bryce just read for us, right? Matthew 6, 16 through 18. What does Jesus say? Do you remember? What were the first three words and what he says here? Just read them with me. Here we go. When you fast. When, when you fast. That sounds like an assumption that we would actually be fasting, right? And I think it was his assumption that his followers would fast. But um, most, of, most don't actually do that or actually don't do that very often. And so this morning, what I'm going to do, instead of really uh, spending our time walking through this entire uh, passage, I'm just going to focus on those first three words, when you fast. And the reason I'm going to do that is not because the rest of this passage isn't really great. It absolutely is. Jesus taught it. It's just that I'm not sure it feels real relevant to us. <laughs> All right, and I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to shame anyone about that. I'm in this boat. I don't fast real often. Just want y'all to know that. So I'm not like holier than thou. I can't believe y'all don't fast. Like I, this is an area that I need to grow in. Putting this message together, incredibly convicting for me. Now I did feel a little bit better because I had just done a lot of fasting in the 21 days. So it's like, okay, I have done that, but on my regular, like the rest of the, you know, whatever 340, whatever the math is of uh, the days of the year, I'm not fasting real often. But Jesus says, when you fast. Like, it's an assumption 
that we should be doing that. So here, the rest of this passage, just to, just to snapshot it, he just says, okay, when you fast, hey, don't, don't do it to get everyone's attention. Don't do it in a way that makes you like, look like you're really committed to God. Don't, don't do it to, to impress others. Just do it between you and the Father, and he's going to see you, and he's going to reward you. That's basically this teaching. Now, there's a lot more that could be said on the rest of this, but again, I don't know if it's real helpful for us unless we're actually fasting. I was thinking about it, it's like if I was to tell my boys, who are both 13, if I was to say, hey guys, uh, when, you're, when you drive, always make sure to check your blind spot before you change the lanes. I think they would say, hey dad, I'm sure that's really great advice, but why don't you tell us that when we're actually driving, you know, then it'll be relevant for us. And I, I just think that that's kind of how this passage hits many of us. It's like, okay, Jesus, this is great advice. This is great teaching. Why don't you tell us when it's actually relevant? So my morning, so this morning, my, my desire, my hope is to actually help make this passage relevant to us by encouraging you to actually adopt the practice of fasting regularly on your own. Which again, I know, seems kind of weird, maybe even extreme to think that we would all begin fasting real regularly. Uh, but do you know that it was not always that way? Like when Jesus taught this, Sermon on the Mount, first century, uh, most of the Jews of his day and all of the religious leaders, all the Pharisees of his day fasted, hear this, two times a week. Two times a week, they would go without food because that's what a biblical fast is. I have a definition here, a very simple definition. I think it's a great definition. A biblical fast is to go without food for a spiritual purpose. In Scripture, fasting is always connected to going without food. This is what it is. It's uh, to fast, it's to go without food for a spiritual purpose. In Jesus' day, the Jews, the Pharisees of his day were doing that two times a week. How wild is that? Now, that practice actually continued after Jesus' death and resurrection. His followers continued this bi-weekly fast for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, not just hundreds and hundreds of years, but for 1,700 years at least. And we know that because John Wesley, one of the most influential uh, church leaders in, uh, in the whole world, uh, he, who lived in the 1700s, about mid-1700s, he wrote a lot about fasting. And one of the things that he said, that's one of my favorite things that he said, because it's, uh, well, you'll see. He, he says this, let me just quote it. He says, I fear that there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called. <laughs> Little, uh, little passive-aggressive right there, but <laughs> so-called. Both in England and in Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not fast twice in the month. Can, can you believe those so-called Methodists? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How dare them. My point, uh, my point in bringing all that up is simply to show you that for over 1,700 years, fasting was a normal practice of uh, Jesus' followers. Basically, if you're serious about your apprenticeship or your discipleship to Jesus, you would fast on a regular and frequent basis. Now, here's the question. What changed? 
What, what, you know, why do we now, for most Christians, most Jesus followers, why, why do we hardly ever, if ever, fast? What changed? Why did Jesus followers go from fasting twice a week to hardly, if ever, fasting at all? Now, I gave that a little bit of thought this week. Um, and so here's, here's a little bit of my thinking on this. One is that um, I think food's better now. I just, I mean, like, you know, first century, second century, even up to the 18th century. Like, I fasted, my wife and I were fasting in a 21-day fast. I was, I was dying for fajitas, right? And like, as soon as the fast ended on Sunday, Monday, we were eating fajitas together at a restaurant. And they were amazing. Fajitas make it harder to fast now. I think I just... I think, it's, I think there's something about that. And uh, how easy it is to get fajitas and any other food, that also makes it harder, I think, to fast now than it would have been in, like in the second century. Like you just think of what you want and you can drive there and go get it or you could have them bring it to you. Like DoorDash makes it harder to fast now. You know what I'm saying? Like, and in our culture, you have this like instant gratification Anything you want, you can have it now. And we believe in our culture, we should be able to have it now. If you want it, you should have it, you know? That kind of thinking definitely works against the decision to fast. Like nowadays, like to deny yourself something you want actually feels like maybe unhealthy or cultish. That mentality definitely works against fasting. But um, I think that there's even perhaps a more fundamental reason why we don't fast now, not twice a week or hardly at ever. And that is because um, I don't think we get it. Like, I, I don't think that we understand what not eating has to do with our spiritual lives. You feel that? Like, many of us just wonder, like, okay, what is any kind of physical activity, how kind of, what kind of bearing would that actually have on my spirituality? Like, what, what good, okay, if I'm going to, fasting is not eating food for a spiritual purpose, but you wonder, or I wonder, <laughs> okay, how is not eating actually serve any kind of spiritual purpose? If that's a question of yours, then it certainly would make sense that you wouldn't be excited about going without Pint House or Jenny's ice cream or whatever because you don't think that it's serving a spiritual purpose. I don't think we get it. And so this morning, the rest of our time here, I just want to speak to that. And I want to speak to that by kind of laying out a biblical theology of fasting. So welcome to the first weekend of spring break, college students. This is going to, you know, it's a light thought, light thought here, but should be, should be kind of fun to talk about. And we're going to get into this by jumping into Genesis chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you follow along there. I'll have the words up here on the screen for you. Let's start in verse 4 of chapter, Genesis chapter 2. Here's what it says. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life 
and the man became a living being. All right? Now, there's a play on words uh, in the original language that we miss in our English translation here that I want to just point out to you, okay? So uh, in the Hebrew, the word that's translated man in verse 7 is the Hebrew word Adam. In fact, I think there it is, Adam. And so, um, and it can be translated man or it can be translated human. It's also where we, of course, get the proper name Adam, but in Hebrew, it's actually not a proper name. You can tuck this away for a little Bible trivia. It's why you don't see the name Adam show up anywhere else in the, all of the Bible, because it's not a proper name. It just means man or it means, means human. And in the Hebrew, the word for ground is the word Adoma. And so what you have here is this play on words. Adam was formed from the Adoma. And we're also told that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the word breath in the Hebrew is the word neshama, and uh, it's the word that means breath, but it's also the word that means spirit. Now, here's why I'm telling you all this. Because right here in the creation account, what you see is that being human involves both the ground and the breath of God, the physical and the spiritual, the body and the spirit. That unlike animals who have a body but no spirit or angels who have a spirit but no body, human beings are a kind of hybrid, an integrated being of both body and spirit. To use the phrase, uh, to use theologian Scott McKnight's uh, phrase or term, we are an embodied spirit. That's what it means to be human. We are an embodied spirit, which is why in Scripture we're told that our spirit affects our body and our body affects our spirit. See, your body is an essential part of who you are, that the real you is not just your spirit, nor is the real you just your body. The real you is both body and spirit. You have to wrap your mind, you have to wrap your mind around that, friends, if fasting is ever going to make sense to you. I like what John Mark Comer says about this. He says, fasting is a psychosomatic act in the true sense of the word, that's built around a biblical theology of the soul as your whole person, which includes all of your body, your brain, nervous system, and stomach, for we are an embodied spirit, okay? Now, again, this is why in scripture we see that what you do with your spirit will affect your body. Nancy Piercy, she says, Scripture treats body and soul as two sides of the same coin. The inner life of the soul is expressed through the outer life of the body. For example, she says, Proverbs 4, 21 and 22, says, Keep uh, them, my words, in context, in the, in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all of their what? Body. Yeah. Your spirit affects your body. And in Scripture, we see it works the other way around as well. Your body affects your spirit. 
to show you this, let's go to the famous and infamous passage, Genesis chapter 3. You see this, how the body affects the spirit in the most tragic way possible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the spirit was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but, you know, yeah, God, God did say you must not eat fruit from that tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Notice that was a full-on lie. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Like God has an agenda. You can't trust him. He's out to keep you down. You're going to be better off knowing good and evil for yourself. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, I've heard this story hundreds of times, but it wasn't until recently that I realized the significance that food plays in this story. Okay, specifically, the inability not to eat something that was put in front of you. When I saw that, I had a lot of empathy for Adam and Eve because I've just been there so many times. Yeah. No, seriously, no matter how you read Genesis, whether you read this as a story that, of history or you read it more through a lens of theology, no matter how you read it, I'm not going to get into that right now, this story just highlights that both, hear this, that both the body and spirit were engaged in the act of turning away from God. See, the temptation was not really about food. The temptation was about redefining good and evil, to trust your own instinct, your own gut, the voice in your ear, instead of trusting God and his vision for human flourishing. That's what always has been the temptation. But what was the means of temptation? Right? It was the fruit. It was whether to eat or not to eat. And ultimately, in the story, it's the physical act of eating the fruit that leads to the fall, right? Which highlights that what we do with our body impacts our spirit. In this case, in the most negative of ways. However, in the life of Jesus, we see how what we do with our body can also impact our spirit in the most positive of ways. To show you this, let's jump all the way to Matthew chapter 4. I know I'm kind of moving quickly here, but uh, you'll see why. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 4 says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does that sound familiar, <laughs> right? I think we just read a story about that. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You would think. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Okay, so it's another temptation that has to do with what? 
with food, right? But it, again, it's not really about food, is it? Interesting, isn't that? Um, so uh, the temptation is really about proving something that he doesn't need to prove. There's a lot I could get into there. I'm not going to. But the, again, the means of temptation is food again. And Jesus answered, it is written, and he's going to quote from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, in De- Deuteronomy, which was originally written in the Hebrew, the word there for man, again, is Adam. So Adam shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, again, there's a lot there. I don't have time to get into, but if you're feeling deja vu right now, that's good. That means that you're reading the Bible well, for that's what the writer Matthew has in mind here. This is Jesus replaying the garden story all over again. Here's Jesus, the Adam, human being, face-to-face with the tempter, and here's the temptation. It's, it's about food, but it's not really about food. It's a lot, about more, a lot more to that, but it boils down to doing something with food. But unlike Adam and Eve, who failed when tempted, Jesus succeeded. And he doesn't give in to the devil's temptation. Instead, he overcomes him. Now, how did he do that? And you can't just say, well, because he was Jesus. <laughs> How did he do that? See, for a long time, I thought that the devil came to tempt Jesus uh, after 40 days of fasting because Jesus would have been at his what? His weakest at that moment. But then, but that's not right. And here's how we can know that's not right. It's because in verse 1, we are told that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That this was not a sneak attack by the devil. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus knew that was coming, and so what did he do to prepare for that? He fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. Why? Because Jesus knew that after 40 days of fasting, he would be physically hungry. Oh yeah, that's for sure. But he'd also be spiritually prepared. For after fasting, Jesus wasn't weak. He was strong, for it was only after he had practiced the discipline of being in control of his physical desires, while at the same time communing with the Spirit, that he would be spiritually ready to take on the tempter toe-to-toe and come out as the victor. See, fasting was Jesus' way of engaging his body as his ally in the fight with the enemy. For he understood that what you do with your body impacts your spirit. For to be human is to be an embodied spirit, where your spirit affects your body and your body affects your spirit, for you are a unified whole. And that's one of the main reasons, friends, why fasting is such a helpful practice. It involves all of you. For when you fast, you practice disciplining your flesh or your fleshly appetites, and you leverage the physical hunger pains of your stomach to help you focus your spirit on God. 
See, fasting helps your body and spirit work together in harmony to set your mind on God. And when you set your mind on him, you begin experiencing the life of God and the peace of God. I say that because of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. He says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have the mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. See, for followers of Jesus, the first thing we must do in order to grow in Christ's likeness, to experience the life of Christ within us, that others can experience it through us, the way that we do that, the most, the most essential first step in that process is to set our mind on God, to keep God before us. I love what Dallas Willard says on this. He says, the first and most basic thing we can we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. I love this. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. <laughs> can anyone relate to that? That's a burdensome habit. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. And a new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. And friends, fasting is one of the most effective intentional steps you can take to keep God before you where it engages your entire self, body, and spirit in that pursuit. And as you keep God before you, having your mind set on him, you will experience his life and his peace. See, uh, that's why I really want to encourage all of you to take up the practice of fasting on a regular basis. It's not because fasting in and of itself uh, results in the life of Jesus being produced in you. It's not. Fasting is a practice. It's not the power. What fasting does, though, is that fasting helps involve your body and spirit in the pursuit of setting your mind on the spirit so that the spirit can produce his life in and through you, that he could bear his fruit in you, making you more loving more joy-filled, more full of peace, kinder, more patient, on and on, that the life of Christ would be produced in you as you keep your mind on him, or to use other analogies, to abide in him, as Jesus would say, or to stay in step with the Spirit. Fasting involves your whole body in that pursuit so that God can produce that in you. And who, friends, who of us don't want to be more loving? more full of peace, more patient. This is, how, this is why fasting is helpful. It involves the whole body in the pursuit of setting our mind on the Spirit that he can produce his work, his fruit in us. That's why I want to encourage you to adopt 
this practice of fasting on a regular basis. So here's my invitation. Begin to fast regularly. Now, maybe not twice a week. Don't bite off more than you can chew. Yeah, that, that was an intentional fasting pun. So it's really a, a stoop that low, okay? But um, maybe start, guys, with once a month. That would be maybe where I, I think I'm starting, okay? Actually, it is. I calendared it. I calendared it. You should calendar it. Like, put this in your calendar because you don't stumble into fasting, you know? It's like, oh, I, I missed breakfast. I guess I'm fasting today. That rarely works. <laughs> calendar it. Build it in. Adopt this practice. Begin this practice of the way of Jesus. See, and Jesus says, as you do, as you do it, not to impress others, but for the Father's sake, the Father will see you. And he will reward it. Because he loves it. He loves it when you pursue him. So friends, let's do this. Let's do this. I think you'll grow to love it too. Probably not right away. It's hard, but I think you'll grow to love it. Now, I want to invite our service to, to get the elements for communion. And uh, as they begin passing that out, and y'all can pass it out as soon as you're ready, I do want to say a couple more things real quick. So try to give me your attention. This is important. First off is this. Um, I want you to hear that uh, my encouragement to you to fast is entirely invitational. See, fasting is never commanded anywhere in the New Testament. You do not have to do this. <laughs> kind of just undercut everything I just said. Like, why don't you start off with that, Jake? I could have been watching something on my phone the whole time. <laughs> if you, but seriously, if you think this whole idea is ridiculous, that's fine. You do not have to do this to get God to love you or accept you. You need to hear that, okay? And also, listen, if you aren't ready to fast yet, due to body image issues or an unhealthy relationship with food or poor health, please feel no pressure to do this. Again, it's not commanded. It's entirely invitational. And as Jesus says in Matthew 6, you aren't to do it to impress others. So please don't do it for my sake <laughs> or, or peers' sake. It's between you and God. And so if you're not ready to do it, or if it'd be unhealthy for you to do so, spiritually or physically, then don't do it. But I would encourage you to consider getting with a Christian therapist or life coach and start to explore why you feel you can't or shouldn't do this. Just explore where you might need healing in your relationship with food or your body or spiritual disciplines or Jesus. That might be the next step for you that Jesus is inviting you to take this morning. But again, okay, listen, it's all entirely invitational. And the reason it's invitational is because of what we are remembering when we take communion. For this act, like fasting, integrates both the physical and the spiritual in order to help us remember that Jesus laid down his life on our behalf so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. See, it's because of what he's done that we don't have to do anything to earn God's love. We have it in Christ. Praise be to God. 
And now that we're now, because of what he's done for us, we are invited to practice the way of Jesus, to take up things like fasting, not to get something from God, but in order to more fully walk in what he's already given us. So let's rejoice in that as we take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Thank you.